Welcome back. Um, and thanks for joining us. This is Wallet Street, um, a show where we try to make sense of a lot of the jumbled spaghetti that is finance and the financial industry. Um, I myself worked in finance for a few years and still there's a lot that I don't understand um, and particularly about this topic. So today, student loans, you know, have been making headlines recently. We've seen costs of higher education have increased um, and U.S. News and World Reports cited in what I was reading ahead of this, that in-state tuition in the U.S. Um, has increased to 11000 a year and private tuition to 44000 And this makes young people, you know, starting and working at an early age to take, you know, they're forced to take on high levels of debt and make these really big financial decisions. So last year, President Biden announced a loan forgiveness program, which has been a topic of lots of debate. And Today, we'll be talking with David Kafafian, COO of Stride Funding, um, which offers income share loans for financing the cost of education. And he's going to help us dig into the latest news on student loans, the cost, the rising costs of education, and what are the emerging ways to fund higher education. Um, so really excited to talk with him. Ahead of the show, I gathered some questions and comments from our listeners, so we'll share that at the end. As always, you can send questions and comments at Wallet Street on LinkedIn, TikTok, or you can send me an email at WalletStreetPodcast at gmail.com. And then before we get started, as always, just a quick disclaimer that nothing in this uh, podcast is intended as financial, legal, tax, or investment advice. So with all of that out of the way, um, before David gives a little intro about himself, I just wanted to share how we met, which was we both worked at JP Morgan in investment banking. So we each went through some long hours and uh, some interesting times there. And now we've all, you know, each of us has moved on to different roles. But as I was thinking about student loans, which is such an important topic, I think, in our culture um, and for the next generation of students, I wanted to reach out to him to get his perspective. So David, can you share a little bit about yourself and um, intro you and, and Stride Funding? Um, of course. Thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, really, really excited to, to chat with everybody today. Um, uh, I liked your disclaimer. Uh, if there's anything I learned from my quarter of a million dollars of, uh, of law school tuition, it's to say this is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, but as it relates to Stride Funding, uh, the company that we've built over the last uh, four or five years, we're a venture-backed uh, fintech startup at our core. Um, we're really a, a new take on student lending. Um, that new take is threefold is the way I really think about it. Um, the three core things that we differentiate on are first, our ability to serve students with a, I'll say non-traditional credit angle. Um, most student loans, 92%, in fact, are um, only offered to students uh, who have a parent or other family member who can co-sign for them. Basically, if you're from a family that is credit worthy, you can get a student loan. If you're not, uh, good luck. Uh, if the federal government can't fund it, you, you aren't going to be fundable from the private markets. And so um, really rethinking that credit box is a core innovation to stride. Part two is uh, we think about that, um, that new form of credit underwriting is looking towards really the value of the educational programs that people are investing in. Are they going to produce real world career outcomes? And if that's our lens, then we're able to serve students, um, not just in bachelor's and master's programs, but also students in trade schools, trucking schools, um, coding boot camps, whatever it might be. Uh, and so our ability to serve students across, uh, I'll say post-secondary education, even if it's not traditional higher ed is the point of differentiation number two. And then part three is we want to have more humane repayment structures. We know that 
students are at the beginning of their um, financial and career journeys, and that's not a straight line. And so we should have uh, monthly repayments that are flexible, that maybe don't kick in when they're not earning or are less when they're making less. And so we offer a variety of different, I'll say non-traditional student loan repayment options um, to help serve students wherever we meet them in life. Um, I came into the space because I was a really agitated student loan borrower myself. I was uh, in my first semester of law school, I was calling every private student lender around and I was just shocked to find out that um, that I was going to still need to go back to my parents and say, um, do you actually want to, uh, uh, do you want to help me take out uh, another six figures of loans to go pay for law school, despite the fact that for the first time in their life, they paid off their mortgage. Uh, and uh, that felt really icky to me. And it felt like a bad business decision. And it felt like a, you know, a miss for society um, because education is this really unique opportunity for people to grow their, their own personal human capital. Um, and we shouldn't limit the financing for that based on whether family members are credit worthy. Um, and so um, that's really how we got into the space, but uh, certainly the, the topic has gotten hairier over the last few years with all of the federal government um, interventions. So excited to talk about that today. Yeah, and I think a good place to start would be, um, you know, myself included, think about student loans in a really traditional sense. There's federal loans that the federal government um, will originate. And then there's also the private markets or private companies that will also issue student loans. Um, that's kind of how we've thought about it so far. So if you could, or, or up until I think what's happening in the space recently, could you share a little bit more about income share loans and how they work differently and maybe some of the trade-offs um, there versus some of the federal or private loans? Absolutely. So our, our flagship and, and first product at Stride Funding, as you said, is, is our income share loan. Um, it really does combine all three of those points of differentiation that I spoke about. Um, and the, the primary point of difference relative to I'll say most traditional loans that people think about is um, whereas a traditional loan, um, frankly, whether it's for student loan or auto loan, whatever it might be, a traditional loan, you pay back the amount that you borrowed based on a fixed, usually usually fixed APR um, in however many payments, 36, 60 payments um, that are the same payment each and every month, regardless of frankly what your financial circumstances. With an income share loan, the idea is that you'll borrow money up front, will send money to your university financial aid office on your behalf to get credited against your account. Um, but rather than needing to pay down that cash balance, um, the product looks like something where we'll say, we'll take a fixed percentage of your income, let's say 4% of your income for 60 payment months. Uh, so five years of payments um, until either you've made 60 payments or you've hit a payment cap, um, whichever comes first. And what that means is that we're taking a little bit more of a volatile risk, right? The student who earns a lot less than we projected, or frankly, the student who doesn't graduate and doesn't end up going to get on get the job that we had planned will earn a lot less and will owe us a lot less because they're, they're paying us a fixed percentage of their income. Um, and so even though that we might get 60 payments, those, those absolute amount of payments are less than we expected, um, or we might make more than we would have expected. Um, and there's a cap there for a reason, right? People are not uh, startups. And so we don't want you know anybody to pay us 100X or even 2x, frankly, what we gave them. Uh, but the idea is that it allows the student to know that they pay less when they make less, they pay more when they make more. And then the last and probably most crucial piece is that we always have a minimum income threshold in these products. So the idea is if you're earning less than $40,000 annualized, um, you're paying nothing in those months. And it's not accruing new costs. Um, it's just acknowledging that, as I said earlier, life is not a straight line. And in those periods, the investment hasn't yet, investment in education hasn't yet worked out for you, the borrower or the student. Um, and so that's our kind of uh, really interesting tweak. Um, and from my vantage point, the, the more humane version of having a student loan. 
Um, ISLs took their hold uh, really in the bootcamp market was the primary um, uh, use case. Uh, Purdue University then launched a flagship back, back a boiler um, ISA program um, themselves uh, back in 2015 or so. Um, and now there's uh, probably, we fund students at a, a few hundred universities, uh, probably about 50 or 60 boot camps. Um, and so it's a growing market um, as students think about how do they think about the, the cost and value of education and making sure that their payments remain affordable. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we, we innovate across a few different things, but, but appreciate you asking about that. So let me just um, ask a follow-up here. So mm -hmm. rather than having uh, a tenure on the loan or like some kind of fixed year, so like, you know, in mortgages, for example, 30-year mortgage is a typical time frame. It's in terms of number of installments rather than um, some kind of like, okay, you have 10 years to pay this back or or 20 years. We, we will have a cap on the amount of time. So, you know, okay. our fullest structure for a university student, say you're a student at a Rutgers pursuing a nursing degree. Um, uh, we may give you a, a $10,000 in exchange for 4% of your income for um, 60 payment months that you will pay over a maximum of 120 months. The idea being this shouldn't follow you forever. If you're unemployed for a really long period of time, we shouldn't be chasing you till you're uh, 60 years old, even though that, that may be what the federal government would actually do under their program. Um, our, our view is we should have, um, we should have a structure where upon making 60 payments, you're done. If you hit a payment cap um, early, then you're done early. And if you are below that minimum income threshold for a really prolonged period of time, eventually it will just turn out. Um, and that product is a, 120 months. Um, but the idea being, we want to make sure that our students are you know, able to get into the programs they need, get access to funding, pay when it pays off, frankly, and um, and know that the payments will remain um, more affordable because they will adjust with, with their levels of earning. Um, and so that's a really key feature. I think the federal government has actually pioneered a very similar version of funding funding via their income-driven repayment program. There's tweaks and, and challenges with that program, the way they've designed it, but it's frankly based off of the same principles that we need to have something that kind of cushions the fall for students, recognizing that they're not all going to land their dream job two months after graduation, um, and they're not all going to remain employed every single month thereafter, um, as we're seeing in, in the market cycle right now, where layoffs are a thing, and, and people need some cushion in that. Yeah, or for example, in, in COVID, when the moratorium was issued on, on student loans. So this, yeah, this brings me to a question because there's so much news around, um, yeah, what President Biden or the administration has put out in terms of different ideas on on um, student loan repayments. Um, so could you just walk us through a little bit? Because I think myself, I was confused even coming into this. Like, I kind of thought that the loan forgiveness offering or proposal that was on the table was similar, like that plus the income driven repayment were kind of all part of the same thing. Is that the case or are they actually like two separate distinct? Really good question. So when Biden's administration formally announced, I believe it was in September, um, uh, loan forgiveness, um, it was actually a three part announcement, right? Part one of the announcement was that they were going to forgive $10,000 for non-Pell recipients, $20,000 for um, Pell recipients uh, who were earning below X. Um, and so that was just the pure forgiveness angle. Part two um, uh, was that they were going to extend the moratorium till what was January 2023. That's since been extended again. I mean, part three was some proposals around how they wanted to reshape and redo um, the already existing federal income driven repayment program. And I'll dig into what that is. 
um, a little bit, uh, but they are distinct in that way, right? The forgiveness is a bit of a blunted object to just say your balances were $40,000. And now if you were a Pell recipient who met the criteria, they will be 20,000, we'll just subtract 20. Um, needless to say, since that announcement, uh, the number of court cases have come up. Uh, the Supreme Court will be hearing that the first half of this year. So the actual status of that is a little bit unknown to all of us as we have this conversation. Uh, but that was the forgiveness proposal. Um, uh, and I think otherwise a, a relatively simple proposal agnostic to uh, any future changes in the federal student loan program. Um, it is also clear and important to note all of that forgiveness is entirely focused on federally held federal student loans. It's not affecting people who have Sally Mae student loans or SoFi student loans or Stride income share loans, un unaffected by that. Um, part two is simple. That's just the moratorium that continues to get get punted every three months or something like that. And hopefully we'll get turned back on once we have clarity from the Supreme Court on the forgiveness side of things. Part three is actually the one that is, to my mind, the most substantively interesting from a policy perspective. Um, anybody who was saying that Biden wasn't thinking about kind of the, uh, the long term of student loans didn't read that third part. Now, people of different policy angles can, can agree or disagree as to whether it's good policy, but it, it is absolutely forward-looking in nature. The idea being that we have a pretty complex web of, or we've historically had a complex web of um, federal income-driven repayment programs. Basically, what the government had put in place was something similar to what our income share loan is. Um, uh, over the last 15, 20 years, they've had these plans called pay and repay and other acronyms that basically said, if you're not earning above a given level, you pay nothing in those months. If you're earning just slightly above that level, you only pay 10% of your in discretionary income. And uh, and then eventually, you know, you earn enough of money that you cap out. Um, uh, the proposed changes here basically increase the minimum income threshold on the federal program, um, reduce from 10% of discretionary income to 5% of discretionary income, what people would need to pay, and then made some other structural tweaks that are very important around getting rid of things like interest being able to accrue faster than payments, um, things that are a bit more technical in nature, but nonetheless, probably good, good good fixes, both for kind of borrower fairness and otherwise. The challenge though, is anybody who's now looking at the plan that they've put forth and they officially released the details of that plan, maybe about two or three weeks ago in the middle of January, 2023. Um, the challenge is it's, it seems like a very uneconomically sustainable plan. Uh, there's a recent, report out showing that only 22% of student loan borrowers would pay off their full student loan debt to the federal government if this policy was to, in fact, go through. Um, uh, so I think we're at a point where we really as a society need to a bit decide on is edu higher education just this kind of blind right, regardless of whether it leads to good career outcomes? Um, do we deem it so valuable that taxpayers should pick up the tab for students um, over the long run? Or uh, do we think that we should limit it to a specific set of schools and programs that are delivering real high ROI for students at a fair cost upfront? Um, or should we, do we need to rethink this federal student loan program altogether? But um, it's a really meaningful and important change. Um, the Biden administration themselves said that um, it will reduce payment repayment recovery by 40%. So every dollar lent, the federal government got 40 cents less back. Uh, you don't need to have been an investment banker to know that that is a meaningful change in the portfolio economics of what the government and taxpayers will feel for bringing this to life. So um, it's ultimately a political and a policy decision uh, about what we want, but it is a really, really impactful go forward change to the extent it, it goes through as proposed. One of the questions I have or that's coming to mind is um, 
like you said, these are all proposals to the federal program, right? And there's still like a wide um, swath of loans that are actually privately held and so won't be affected by these changes. Um, but I remember when I was looking at student loans and um, the the interest rate that you pay on the loans generally, or at least when I was looking, was higher on the federal loans than actually in the private markets. Um, and I was a little more conservative and took out federal loans because I knew about some of these, like if you, like you said, like repayment, if you are unemployed or some of the cushions that that can happen, whereas you might not get that in private loans. So, I mean, those are very difficult, I think, trade-offs to make. And if you don't have access to private loans and, and maybe can't get cheaper rates. Um, and I don't know if that's always true that it's it's cheaper it interest true? in private, but. Yeah, so no, it's a very good question. The reality is it really depends on that first point of differentiation that I spoke about from, from a stride vantage point earlier, which is that for students who have access to a co-signer um, or who themselves maybe at the grad school point of borrowing have a 740 FICO and you know are considered super prime, they likely can borrow. Um, from private markets at rates cheaper than the federal government, maybe not at this very moment in time when interest rates are uh, pretty volatile, but uh, but generally speaking, that's probably true. The reality is, though, as I said, 92% of private student loans uh, at the undergraduate level require a co-signer. Um, we estimate that two and three, if not three and four students don't have access to a creditworthy co-signer. And those students get access to very, they either don't get access to a private loan at all, or they're getting access to something that's like mid-teens, in terms of ATR, which is really quite expensive. Um, and they would otherwise lack some of the same protections that you spoke about. And so um, I think it is a little bit of a misnomer, right? The federal program does not fund the full cost of education at all programs. In graduate school, the Grad Plus program will allow students to borrow up to the full cost of attendance. Um, in undergrad, Parent Plus will cover the bridge through to the rest of uh, the cost of education. but. There's a key word in there, which is parent, right? You, you have to have a parent borrower in, in that federal parent plus, plus program for undergrad. Um, and so it really is a conundrum for a lot of students, right? Society, I think, I would say like the, the family backyard barbecue test, uh, where you just like are speaking to a lovely aunt who doesn't know really anything about space. They would always assume any student can get access to a federal loan and that will cover the full cost of attending anywhere. And the reality is that's not the case. Most students can get access to maybe six, six grand of Pell, if they are from a family that's Pell eligible, maybe 20 grand of federal direct. And then the rest is, do you go get a private loan or a plus loan for that academic year to fill out the cost of attendance? And with where uh, with where tuition costs are going, you know, every year students need $15,000, $20,000 to, to bridge that gap. And that's what either the plus market or the private student loan market or income share loans uh, fill. What has, um, how has rising interest rates affected student loans in the last 12 months? Is it just direct correlation to obviously the the cost of borrowing is more um are there any other impacts or is that really the main one that's the primary one uh there's a second order one that i'll walk through but ultimately i think you know uh, almost all student loans are subject to uh variable interest rates at least at the point of origination so most students will lock in a fixed rate when they borrow but um but the student who's borrowing today is likely seeing a more expensive student loan rate than if they had borrowed last year um for their junior year, say, for example. Um, and that's the case in federal and in private, right? Most private lenders have variable costs, uh, I'll say, behind the scenes. And um, and in the federal loan program, they reset rates every July. Um, and so I'm sure we'll see another uptick, I would imagine, this coming July, um, as we did last July. So, so all of those are increasing costs to borrowers. Um, the other piece that is really important to note is that 
Um, we have a rising rising interest rate environment and, and kind of downstream of that, we have a lot of inflation. <laughs> and that inflation really takes a meaty chunk out of most uh, low and middle income uh, Americans, let alone students, paychecks. And that reduces their ability to repay on these mm-hmm. products. Um, pair that with the fact that their federal loans have been on pause for the better part of three or more years at this point. Um, and, you know, there's a good chance that we see spikes in uh, consumer credit delinquencies all across the board, let alone student loan delinquencies, because they're spending more money to get their groceries. That's less money that they have to pay off their student loans. And all of a sudden, their federal loan that maybe was on deferral for this last three years of COVID, uh, all of a sudden, they owe, pick a number, $380 more a, more a month that they haven't been paying. Um, and the reality is, you know, borrowers would have been really well served to pay down some of those balances when they weren't accruing interest over these last three years with the federal government. But um, but that was not a policy decision that we pushed uh, as a country. Most students were not doing that. And so their balances have stayed flat. And so, um, you know, I'd say that the impact of interest rates and inflation are yet to be really, really seen in this market. But uh, I would expect us to really need to, uh, <laughs> to brace for impact uh, in the back part of this year. Yeah, it's um, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, also on this moratorium, how much further it gets pushed, because um, like you said, I think it's already been three years now um, or close okay. to three years. Um, I, mean, I would say that I, uh, I don't personally ascribe to this, but I've had a couple of very smart government relations professionals tell me that they think that at least while Biden is president, that we will not see these uh, see the moratorium turn back on at all. Um, that uh, that especially if SCOTUS says that the forgiveness plan isn't viable, but they may just leave payments off. I frankly couldn't be less expert in opining as to whether that is true or not um, and what the implications of that would be. But uh, but it's not lost on me that, that smart people are saying that that is a real possibility um, and uh, and one that you know we shouldn't be totally caught off guard by if it happens. So let's um, maybe go back to the focus more on the income share loans. I'm curious if you could walk through a little bit how it originates. How does someone, um, you know, get the loan in place? Do they have to present like possible jobs that are available after they graduate? Or I guess, are you familiar with the likelihood of employment for certain programs? And that's kind of how you measure ROE. Great question. So, you know, I think like any credit underwriter, um, we think about two things. We think about ability to pay and willingness to pay. And Mm -hmm. Um, and whereas, you know, most loan originators, whether they're originating mortgages or student loans are thinking about the ability to pay angle, really like, can you afford these payments? They think about them on the basis of how much you're earning today. And is that enough to cover how much you're going to owe me each month? At Stride, we really don't believe that that makes any sense. In student loans, everybody gets deferral while they're in their degree program. So back to my Rutgers nurse, for example, maybe they're coming to me as a senior, they're not going to owe me money, um, most likely under that that plan, while they're actually in school. So they have basically 12 months of deferral to finish the last nine months of their program, and then they get a grace period. So for me to ask them, what are they earning today to determine whether they can afford their payments a year from now, when today they may be not working at all or working as a barista or something on campus, and tomorrow, or really in a year from now, they're going to be a nurse making $65,000, a year. It doesn't make any sense. And so what we do at Strive, we think about what is the risk-adjusted earnings expectation for those students upon completion of the programs, factoring in things like non-graduation and longer times to placement and whatever the macro cycles have at hand. Let's think about that as the real backdrop for can these students afford to repay the loan obligations because that's the investment that they're making. They're investing that 
they're going to spend money today to earn money tomorrow and we don't need the money till tomorrow so we should we should underwrite in that capacity um so that is all done based on a really amazing team of data scientists that are far sharper than i um studying all kinds of macroeconomic department of ed bureau of labor statistics data around um uh uh, educational outcomes and how it uh, persists through the workforce and and uh, and through various labor markets. Um, the willingness to pay piece is also important. We, we need to know uh, whether they can afford it or not. Are they going to actually log into the portal and set up auto pay, or are they actually going to log into the portal and pay each month, whatever it might be? Um, and again, that's an area where we think that traditional student lenders just miss the mark a little bit. They look for things like FICO, which some of the key uh, contributors or drivers of a high FICO are like, how long have you had your oldest trade line? And how many trade lines do you have? Well, if you're 22 years old. My guess is your oldest trade line is not more than three or four years old. Um, and that's just not enough <laughs> to create a high FICO. Um, and so we've worked really hard with TransUnion and uh, a number of other partners to build out our own proprietary risk scores that think about the fact that by their very nature, students are earlier in their financial journeys and have less credit history um, and we need to be able to be discerning for what is thin credit and what is bad credit. And to date, we've not been able to serve bad credit. That sounds like a really hard challenge that I'd like, love to take on once we tackle this one. But for now, let's just acknowledge that, that these students are coming to us at, a, at an earlier vantage point. Let's build risk scores that screen for, I'll say, adverse credit incidents, but don't ding them for the fact that they only have two credit cards that they barely use, but they do pay on time. Um, and let's use that as the combination to determine, can we offer them funding? Um, does after the loans are originated, um, is it similar to the mortgage market where loans are resold or do you hold on them for the so, duration? So we're still building this market a little bit. I, you know, we're, we are um, at this point, probably the largest uh, originator in the space. Um, and I will say, yes, in the, in the long term, is it very possible that this goes through a pretty similar kind of securitization uh, um, uh, takeout that you would see in other frankly, consumer and commercial credit markets? Absolutely. Right now, we've built structures where we have a number of different lending partners that we work with to basically originate assets into the specific special purpose vehicles or um, credit facilities that, that we've set up with them. Um, so as I said earlier, we're a venture-backed company. We're not originating these and holding them ourselves. Rather, we have bank facilities that allow us to say, hey, I want just exposure to your income share loans in the degree market, or I want just exposure to your income share loans in the software bootcamp space, whatever it might be. And we use those as almost, I'll say, you know, like pre-securitized pools that we can we can place assets into so that the credit investors who like lending can get exposure to those, those assets and those cash flows. Uh, ultimately though, we think it's really, really important that we be thoughtful on who those partners are. So uh, very early on in our journey, we were offered some quite expensive term sheets as early stage companies are, and that's okay in some walks of life, but if you're lending to students, we didn't feel great about that. So. Our very first funds were all driven by nonprofit investors who wanted their money back, uh, but wanted a below market rate of return so that we could really prove out this model. Um, as a result of doing that, we've been able to get to the bank capital markets sooner, which is just lower cost than some of the you know the higher cost credit funds. Um, and uh, we're not quite that year yet there, um, but I would imagine with another year or two of data um, and, a, and a rating, we likely can get to the insurance markets. Um, for capital providers, which is even lower cost. And, and we think we can continue to pass along those cost savings to students as we go. Interesting. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit to, in our lead up to our conversation, you shared some writing that you had done around, um, you know, everything going on in the news with 
Biden's announcements around um, the income driven repayment plan. And, you know, you've talked about it before, even in this conversation about how the, some of the issues with student loans is that the high cost of education doesn't really match what the ROI or, or return on in, income is um, or return on investment uh, for the for that individual after they graduate. Um, so, which I think is an, an interesting argument. I guess my my counter to that and, and curious where you land on this is, you know, and you talked about is education at, at higher education levels, do we think of it as a as a right or um, you know, maybe more pragmatically than that. What would you say about, you know, importance of education for education itself um, mm-hmm. versus, you know, what is the ultimate profitability or or profitability is a very um I don't know what the word is, uh, investment bank way to think about it, but you know, what an income, uh, someone would make after, after the fact, um, kind of curious. Yeah. On your, on your thoughts there. So I think it's a, um, I want to be very clear. I think we need to dedicate significant societal resources towards education. I just wonder if a loan is the right mechanism for all of these programs. Right. I think, uh, I have uh, as as squishy and fluffy a, a liberal arts degree as anybody from my undergrad experience. Um, that would probably be a one that's like hard to directly under. It's not a nurse example, for example. Um, ultimately, I think the question becomes: if tuition at some of these schools is seventy five thousand dollars a year, and to get through undergrad, students are taking out three hundred k of loans, and they're doing it from the federal government without constraints on whether the program is fairly priced to start whether it's going to lead to a job on the back end. I think we have to ask ourselves, like, is that a loan or are we just encumbering that person with debt that they are inevitably unlikely to be able to afford? And if and if we think it's that important, then maybe we should truly just increase Pell. And granted, as a scholarship, there are plenty of things that are really socially valuable um, and that society uh, doesn't compensate as well. I can think of social workers. I can think of teachers um, in many respects. Uh, I think we need to really think about if rather than just having this blunted student loan program that convinces many students to overborrow beyond their means and convinces them to think that programs that are, in fact, not great statistical um, returns on investment, um, maybe persuades them to thinking that they are. Instead, what if we just told those students, hey, if you're in these programs that that we governmentally, as, as a populist, whatever it might be, think are so valuable, in those programs, we'll offer you a direct subsidy. Because we know that you won't make enough money to pay these off. And we're not going to have you go damage your credit score for the next 15 years trying to prove otherwise. Um, that, to me, feels like what we're already doing financially. We're already um, likely losing money and <laughs> significantly on the federal student loan program. So let's just lose it in a bit more of a conscientious and intentional way if we're going to do it that way. Uh, because I do think you raise a very good point. Um, I think my other concern, though, is, um, is that if we are going to have an income-driven repayment program at the federal uh, level. Um, it needs to be tethered to, to a focus on what are the outcomes of these programs. Are they, in fact, by their nature, good investments? And good investments doesn't mean that you need to go on to investment banking or medical school to make a ton of money. Good investments can mean that you have a stable path to earning $55,000 a year. But $55,000 of your salary shouldn't come at $300,000 degree costs. They should come at $40,000 degree costs. And there's a lot of great schools that do that. Um, and I think, you know, our, our, my view is that from a policy perspective, we should be propping up those programs. And um, and then the last piece is plenty of students just don't want to go to a two or four, you know, more year degree program. Um, they're better served doing an HVAC course or 
um, trying to become an electrician, um, pursuing any other trade or, you know, a short course boot camp. And in those instances, we actually don't offer any federal funding. Um, and I think we need to reevaluate that. And frankly, that's the market that Stride is best positioned to serve um, because of just how proximate they are to um, uh, to the workforce. So, um, you know, again, I, I want to be really clear. My goal is not to say that we should uh, <laughs> remove resources from funding higher ed or, or post-secondary. I just think we just need to be more thoughtful about where we allocate it. Well, and, um, you, you know, you mentioned this is like the if you go, take the problem a step you know, backwards even more, it's like, the you know, why is the cost so high? Um, and even in public, you know, tuition, I was reading about the costs going up so significantly. Um, you know, now they say, or from this U.S. News and World Report, it's 11,000 on average for one year of, of public um, uh, universe, you know, four-year education. Um, and then I was also reading that, you know, state and local funding for higher ed dropped between dropped 25% between 1988 and 2018. So there's also, um, you know, I think my personal view has been that, you know, private institutions are going to charge what they charge, but at least at the public level that there should be the opportunity um, at a much more affordable way to to pursue higher education. And we just, that has dropped off, it seems, for sure in the last few years. And I I think to me, it's also just about the transparency of it all, right? If, um, uh, education uh, and information can be valuable unto itself, whether it ever leads to a dollar of earning or not. But the time to tell students that we don't know, that we think that this is a uh, risky investment is not after they've uh, borrowed against their future. Yeah. To do it. It's before, right? And that is a conversation we seem very uncomfortable having. Um, and so I think that is, you know, again, like let's bring that information to the front of the fold. We have truth and lending disclosures, rightfully so, uh, for lending, maybe we should have like truth and education disclosures. I don't, I, I, you know, I think something that brings that to the forefront and just acknowledges that that we're having these students borrow against their future or borrow against their parents' future in many instances. Um, uh, that information should be upfront about what, what is their ability to actually succeed in paying down that borrowing. And if it's not going to be sustainable, then we need to figure out ways to deliver the cost, the programs at lower cost. We need to figure out a way that you know federal government or the Department of Ed help subsidize those programs if we really do deem them valuable. Um, but my concern is that plenty of students are, are implicitly believing that because their federal government will, will lend to them um, for these programs, that they, they, they must inherently be good investments. And that's just not the case. <laughs> well, this brings me to the listener um, questions or comments, because I had put out a poll last week just to kind of get a sense of what people were thinking. Um, and I asked, did you feel that the cost of repaying your student loans was worth the education that you received? And um, the answers were surprising. It was split across the board um, equally between yes, no, and not sure, which in my mind, I would have thought most people would have said yes, like, yes, it was expensive, but you know, it was worth it in the end. And really it wasn't the case. Um, so I was kind of surprised by that. Again, this is a very small sample size from my LinkedIn poll. So, you know, I wouldn't, it's obviously not gonna, I'm not going to extrapolate it to the, to the wider U S population, but, um, you know, again, this is a little bit shocking that not everyone's like, yeah, it was definitely worth it. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, uh, I don't think I included it in my intro, but I think it's important to note, right? I had started a prior iteration of, of stride funding when I was in law school, when I was so frustrated by the experience I had myself, I couldn't pursue that because I knew I had to pay off the student loans that I borrowed. 
because uh, I was fortunate, it meant that I got to meet you and uh, had, had a great few years at JP Morgan and, and worked with some amazing people. But um, but the reality is, right, for many, many people, it is a um, is a choice that has long run ramifications about what they're going to do and what they're going to spend their time on. Um, and again, that's OK. So long as we've given students and families the information up front to be successful. And, and I also don't mean to beat up on the Department of Ed. I think the college scorecard that they released, which is this massive national data set um, and started getting released maybe five or six years ago, has done a, a world of good as far as helping to give some of that information uh, to students and families about graduation rates and placement and earnings and across these programs. I think we have a lot of improvement to continue to do there, but um, but yeah, uh, the whole rest of the world is data-driven. Uh, I think we should help students and families to be when they're leaving high school and pursuing their educational dreams post uh, in post-secondary. Interesting. Um, one question that I also got from a listener is about um, international students can have a hard time finding loans. Um, like you mentioned, if you don't have a co-signer, um, you know, if you are coming here from another country, you likely don't have someone in the U.S. who can help co-sign for you. So, um, you know, how does that do income share loan agreement or income share loans work for international students or, or not? They can. Uh, unfortunately, at Stride, we don't yet serve international students. We just haven't figured out all of the, the um, I'll say, different legal and regulatory components of actually bringing that to life. Um, so I will do something that I, uh, you know, I'm normally remiss to do, which I should give a plug to some competitors uh, or quasi-competitors. I think Prodigy and Empower are probably the two most notable international-focused student lenders, all for higher ed. Um, they've built pretty solid markets in uh, being able to serve students without a co-signer um, who are pursuing degrees here in the U.S. Um, it's absolutely something that is, you know, if, if we think about our mission as being, you know, access to great educations and economic mobility, access should, you know, <laughs> not be uh, uh, divided based on, on your citizenship or where you were born. So it's absolutely something that I would love to have us pursue in the longer run. Our focus is around no co-signer lending. And, and so this is just a different um, flavor of that or a different use case for, for why they come with no co-signers. Uh, but there's a couple of players that have done a really good job in, in improving that market. Um, and hopefully, uh, we speak again in a couple of years, I can say that uh, income share loans are, uh, or strides income share loans are, are, are supporting those students as well. Well, thank you so much for talking through this. It's clear that it's a very, um, you know, there's a lot to, to talk about in this topic and there's a lot there. You know, obviously we can't cover it all right now. Um, it would, I'm sure, take years of knowledge to fully understand everything that, like all the different edge cases and and ways um, that student loans can be used or or taken out. So, but I appreciate you explaining um, and kind of at least uncovering a little bit more how it all works for us. Um, I before we we end, I always like to ask guests uh, one thing that they recommend, maybe either that you're reading or you're listening to or watching um, that you'd like to share. Yeah, I. Uh... I have been on a kick since I found out about it maybe a year ago. I, I cannot get enough of the All In podcast. Um, uh, for, I have uh, so it is, I think it's really exceptional. I think uh, it's exceptional for two reasons: uh, the ability of the uh, of the basically for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's um, probably four of the preeminent VCs in Silicon Valley um, who also happen to be great friends, um, and I think that dynamic is is really unique in the sense that their ability to a cover topics that range from markets and technology and science and politics um you know with with 
real ease and um, uh, information backing up what they say. But also interestingly, like in a moment where we all live in our bubbles, um, to have people who, uh, who cross a variety of different political uh, ideologies and who are actually friends and can get after one another for it um, is, a, is a refreshing take uh, where you get to hear all sides and you get to hear it uh, ungarnished and you get to hear it where people are assuming good intent. Um, I think that has been a, a, a really informative thing for me to listen to. And I, I recommend to every single member of our team. Um, so yeah, if you haven't checked it out, uh, highly, highly recommend. I will. That sounds right up my alley. Um, and then and for me, I've been reading a book called How to Calm Your Mind um, by author Chris Bailey, which uh, is kind of an interesting title, but he's a productivity expert and has written several other books about productivity. But um, he his latest book is about a time where he kind of felt burnt out and, and really um, needed to like reevaluate uh, certain habits in his life. And so he kind of talks about, you know, how we're I mean, this is all stuff we kind of know how we like have shorter attention spans. We're always like online, social media and um, are always distracted, but how to bring it back and and calm, you know, down your anxiety. So anyways, it's been kind of interesting and um, some good practical tips in there. Somebody whose mind is very rarely calm. uh, (laughs) Take that that under advisement. Mine too. Um, Great. Well, uh, for all of you out there where you can find more of David and Stride is at stridefunding.com or at stridefunding on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can find David at stridefunding.com. Is there anything I forgot to mention or plug? No, this was great. I, I really just appreciate you reaching out. Um, I uh, This is certainly a passion project for me. Education is really, really important. And I think you, you touched on it well. Um, and my hope is just that we can help more students find more opportunities into great programs so that they can get the junctures in their lives and their careers that they're excited about. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I appreciate the invite. And pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And thanks to everyone listening. Um, As always, please rate and review the pod. um, And you can sign up for my newsletter at walletstreetpod.com and submit questions and comments for our next episode, uh, either on LinkedIn, TikTok, or send me an email at walletstreetpodcast at gmail.com. I'll announce um, later this week what the next episode will be about. So thanks again and uh, catch you next time.